0: encourage you to please keep your Bibles open to Mark. And if you need a Bible, we have copies in the back as well. Well, this morning we continue our series, uh, Walk Through the Bible, which is an introduction to the Holy Scriptures book by book. My intention in this series is to give you the big idea of each book of the Bible so that when you read it on your own, you have some kind of idea of the ba- the main idea, and that will help kind of give you, it's kind of like a closet rod, it kind of gives you something to hang the different things you're reading on, right? If you go to your closet and there's no closet rod and you try to hang something up, it's going to fall to the ground and it's just going to be a pile. And one of the most uh, important things when we study scripture is to get an idea of the structure of each book of the Bible. That structure gives us a way to organize and understand what God is teaching us in his word. One of the questions a lot of Christians have asked me and a lot of students of the Bible have asked is, why are there four gospels? Maybe some of you get to your your Bible reading plan and you get to the gospels and you're like, Okay, I read it once and now I'm in Mark, now I'm going to read it again. And then you get to Luke, I'm going to read it a third time. And, and John, it's a little different, but I'm reading the same thing again. Why does God give us four gospels? It's an important question. And I want to use the illustration of a diamond this morning. You know, if you, I don't, many of us probably have never hold, held a, a really big, beautiful diamond <laughs> before. Because uh, you know, well, I don't need to go into why. But you know, let's say you could hold up a diamond or a, a really beautiful gem. You know, as you as you turn the gem, what happens with the light? You see, the light sparkles. It shows this am, uh, amazing depth and beauty to the the diamond or the jewel as you're as you're turning it around. You know, I think of like the the Queen's diamonds in England. I had the the privilege to go to the tower of london and view those it's just as the light shines in those diamonds and you as you look at them it's just spectacular well the four gospels are a bit like a diamond we get to consider the life of jesus from four different angles so that we can grow in our appreciation of the glory and the beauty and the grace and the love of jesus christ and these four gospels all have a different emphasis last week we saw how matthew emphasized jesus as the messiah and the one who would bring the kingdom of heaven so in matthew we saw this theme of heaven's king and kingdom this morning it was come to mark we're turning that diamond And Mark's emphasis is Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So we are going to consider this morning how Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does Mark show us in his gospel to help us understand how Jesus is the Son of God? I'll just give you a sneak peek to the next. Uh, two gospels as well just to give you an under just a framework as we're considering this next week we're going to see how luke emphasizes jesus's mission that goes to the ends of the earth and then when we come to john we're going to see how john emphasizes the glory of christ so in these four gospels we get to turn the diamond to see the glory and grace and beauty of Jesus in different ways. And so that also, in you study, you can find these themes for yourself as you read the Gospels. The Gospels aren't just four redundant messages about Jesus. While they share similar stories because Jesus lived one life on earth, which they all emphasize, They all highlight different important theological themes that are meant to give us faith, to give us hope, to give us joy, and to help us follow him as his disciples. So let's look at this theme of the Son of God in Mark. And I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Mark, because we're going to kind of do a survey of several passages this morning as we do this study on Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So how does Mark present Jesus as the Son of God in his gospel? Firstly, we see it in Jesus' exorcisms, Jesus' interaction with the spiritual realm. Now, I could start with other places, but this is where we're going to start this morning. It's one of the first things that we see in the gospel. For example, in Mark 1.24, in this passage, we see Jesus healing a man with an unclean spirit. And Mark records that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Isn't this amazing? Jesus is in church, right? He's in the synagogue. And there's a demon-possessed person in their midst. And Jesus, zeroing in on this, confronts this demon. Remember, a demon is nothing more than a fallen angel, one of the angels who fell with Satan. And in confronting this demon, even the demon confesses who he truly is. The demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the other team is bearing witness to who Jesus really is. We see a similar thing in Mark 11, excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verse 11. This is another section of teaching, which uh, scholars sometimes call a pericope, these small sections. So if I use this word pericope, that's, uh, that's what I mean, the, the different kind of sections of the gospel. And in this pericope, we see this great crowd following Jesus. And Mark says, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So people are hearing about Jesus's teaching, and deliverance ministry, and they're coming out to see what's going on. And in the midst of Jesus healing, delivering people from the clutches of Satan, Mark records in verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So again here, the other team, is testifying to who Jesus really is. They are falling down before the Lord and crying out, you are the Son of God. Likewise, maybe one of the most famous passages in the Gospel of Mark, as well as the Gospels as a whole, is Jesus' healing of a man with a demon in Mark chapter 5. Remember, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and goes into the country of the Gerasenes, which would be the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he crosses over with his disciples, and this man comes upon them. And we are told by Mark that this man, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? This man is possessed by demons And the demon speaks through the man and again bears witness to who Jesus truly is. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And the demon begs Jesus not to torment him. But we read in verse nine that Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And if we read on, we see how Jesus sends these demons, this legion of demons, into a herd of pigs. Not only does Jesus bear witness that he is the son of God by casting out demons, by having authority over them, but by also the fact that In these three occurrences and illustrations, we see the demons themselves bearing witness to who Jesus is. They're like, I've seen you before. I know who you are. And they have no power in his presence. So Mark shows us that Jesus is the son of God through these exorcisms. That was number one. Now a second way that Jesus shows or that Mark shows that Jesus is the son of God and that is by his healings his healings for example in Mark 2 verse 7 and in that pericope I'm going to give you the verses I'm giving you are kind of getting to the point, but then I'm going to sometimes read the the verses around that just to give you a heading of where we're going. So beginning in that pericope in verse 1, we read, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. In these opening passages, we see that Jesus' earthly home Is actually in Capernaum. That's one of the interesting things in Mark that's really highlighted is Jesus' adult home being in Capernaum. Just to give you, again, a geographic reference, because Mark loves geography, Capernaum is on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee and uh, on the western side of the Jordan River. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a place, Mark. Of where it is mark loves geography so it's helpful to have an atlas open when you're reading his gospel but at any rate they're at Jesus's home which is probably Peter's home and there's so many people that some who want to get healed can't get in to get healed and and one of these people is this paralytic who's on a stretcher and his buddies are trying to get him in but they can't And so these guys are pretty uh, ingenious fellows. They decide to climb the roof. Not only do they climb the roof, but they break a hole in the roof big enough to lower a stretcher down. This might be one of the reasons why Peter's house was no longer a house after the events of the gospel. It would be another, another teaching lesson to talk about how uh, to go to some archaeology where they believe they've found Peter's house in Capernaum, which became an uh, an early Christian site of worship. But at any rate, Peter's house is being torn apart to let this man down. And as Jesus is talking this paralytic, he saw their faith, we are told by Mark. In verse 5, Mark says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And then we're told in verse 6, now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, the scribes understand what's going on here. By Jesus saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus is putting himself in God's place. They're saying only God can do that. He's blaspheming. And how does Jesus respond? We read in verse 8. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And those that went out were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Mark shows Jesus to be the son of God because only God can forgive sins. And yet it's harder to raise a man than to just simply say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? How about chapter 5, another example of healing? We don't have time to look at the whole text, but in Mark chapter 5, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus comes to Jesus and says, would you heal my daughter? She's unwell. And as Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter, we also have this story of this woman who had this uh, hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years, and she thought, well, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made well. And, uh, And she does touch his garment, she is healed, and Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And then along the way, the disciples are getting discouraged because Jesus should be helping this man Jairus. And while Jesus is delayed by this other woman, Jairus' daughter dies. She dies. And they are obviously distraught. But Mark records Jesus' words in chapter 5, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And the crowd thought he was joking, but then we come to the end of it when he says to this daughter, he said, and Jesus says to the ruler, he says, don't worry, she's not dead, but sleeping. And he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And Mark records in verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So we have seen that Mark shows Jesus to be the son of God in his exorcisms, also in his healings. About a third way, his power over nature. Number three, his power over nature. Some of the most important discipleship moments happen on the Sea of Galilee. And a lot of you know I like fishing. And I've been in a few situations out at sea that have been, uh, let's just put it mildly, beyond my comfort level. Uh, there was one uh, one morning I went out fishing. We live in Tanongar. and so I went out in the North Sea in my little uh, sea kayak to go fishing. And while I was out there, a fog just a dense fog just came out of nowhere. I could see nothing, and I had my GPS, so I knew which way land. I knew how to get back, but I couldn't see anything. And while I'm out there. I see in the not too, when, when it's all fog around, you can't really tell distance, but I see this shadow out on the water. And as, as I'm looking, this shadow is growing bigger and bigger and taller and taller. It was a giant tanker ship. And it's heading right for me. And it's a lot faster than I am. So I turn around, and I pedal as hard as I've ever paddled in my entire life to get out of the way. I, like, waved at the the ship when I got close enough. He honked his horn, which just scared the daylights out of me. And it was a terrifying situation. You know, there was another time that I was out on this side, and I got caught in some really big waves. And it was a lot more than my little kayak that I felt comfortable in. And, you know, I did everything I could to get back into a safe spot, which I did, but it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the sea for some of his most important discipleship lessons with his disciples. There are several times when Jesus deliberately puts his disciples in a situation that will terrify them to teach them something about him And about faith and we see this particularly in mark with these as jesus is going about galilee and then every now and then we'll find them on the sea and whenever they're on the sea something really crazy is going to happen and mark uses them to show us that jesus is the son of god so for example in mark 4 verses 35 and following we read that on that day when evening had come he said to them let us Another example of the disciples being terrified out of their mind on the sea in chapter 6. Where Mark records immediately in uh, chapter 6, verse 45, Immediately, His said to his disciples, Get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples' hearts are so hardened that Jesus needs to terrify them so that he can show them who's in charge. He could show them that he is the Lord of creation, that he is the Son of God. Their hearts are so inhearted they needed a terrifying experience to wake them up. And it would be a, another lesson when we go deeper into Mark to unpack that. But I would encourage you to consider, as you study Mark, these situations that are extremely uncomfortable to the disciples and how Jesus uses them to instruct them, also reflect how sometimes God puts you in extremely uncomfortable situations so that you might come to know Jesus better and that your hard hearts might be softened. So these are three illustrations of how Mark demonstrates through the life and ministry of Jesus that he is the Son of God. We've seen through exorcisms, healings and nature there's three others that i want to quickly look at that deal more with the way that mark composed the gospel so each of the gospel writers will sometimes move the different stories of jesus around or they'll clump them in themes to make a point so that's why sometimes you're reading one gospel and then reading another why the timelines aren't always the same It's not that they were wrong or making a mistake, but they are making different theological points by arranging the stories about Jesus in different ways. So I want to close by just briefly showing you three ways that Mark arranges his gospel to also make this point that Jesus is the Son of God. The first one is, is what you could call an ABA structure. Or if in your notes you just drew like a triangle, like this. There's three critical passages in Mark that all deal with Jesus as the Son of God. One is at the beginning, one is at the end, and one is in the middle. So I want to show that to you really quickly. So in verse one or chapter 1, verse 11... We see Jesus' baptism here, and this is a well-known passage for all of us, but we see, Jesus, or we see the Father speaking to Jesus, where we're told in verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. By the way, that is a, that is a citation or an allusion to Psalm 2, which we sang this morning. I like to do this as often as I can to show you Jesus in the Psalms because the Psalms are ultimately written about Jesus. That's why we sing the Psalms as Christian worship because the ultimate meaning of the message is Christ. And Psalm 2 is evoked here in Mark 11, as the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So that's the first part of the triangle, 111. Let's go to the opposite end, and then we'll come to the middle. On the far other end of the gospel, after Jesus has been crucified on the cross and dies, we read in uh, verse 38, excuse me, verse 39, where Mark says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is the only time in the Gospels where we have this information that the centurion saw Jesus die and declared, truly this man was the son of God. So Mark bookends his gospel, like two bookends holding up a shelf of books, this theme of the Son of God. And then right in the middle, if you look at the literary structure that I've given you in your sermon notes this morning, the Son of God's journey to Jerusalem, that part three, which is the center section, it is here where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then we're told they're up in Caesarea Philippi, which is the far north of Israel's tribal allotment. We're told they go up on a very high mountain which is most likely Mount Hermon, which marks the northern border of Israel's original allotment, they're up there, and Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And in verse 7, we read, in chapter 9, verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So we see in this ABA structure, right? We've got Mark 1.11, Mark 9.7, and then Mark 15.39 that has this very deliberate son of God structure in it. So that's just another way that we see this theme of Christ as the Son of God being illustrated. A fifth way that we see this, so that was number four, this ABA structure. I'll give you number five, and we're going to have six in total. We have this blind vision comparison. At the end of each major section, so if you look at the, the notes and the outline I gave you this morning, In parts 2 to 5, those are the major sections of the Gospel of Mark, after a prologue and an epilogue. At the end of each of those sections, somebody gets sight. It's really interesting. The first two, a blind man is given vision. And then the third one, someone truly sees Jesus for who he is. So, for example, we see this blindness in chapter 8 verse 21 as the first major section is being wrapped up jesus's ministry in galilee and in verse 21 jesus is talking to the disciples about beware of the pharisees leaven and they're like we don't have any bread what's he talking about and jesus is exasperated in verse 21 he says the disciples do you not yet understand And immediately after the disciples' blindness, Mark inserts the story of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida. And we are told in verse 25 that Jesus laid his his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. See, Mark is using this idea of blindness and restored sight to talk about discipleship and who seeing Jesus for who he is. So then this next section, which is the third part, but the second major section, the Son of God's journey to Jerusalem, it ends in the same kind of way. So, if, for example, in chapter 10, verse 38, James and John are arguing about who can sit at the right hand and the left of Jesus in, his, in the coming kingdom. And they're trying to be like the lordly Gentiles who lord their power and their might over everyone else. And Jesus tells them in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. They're still blind. They're still blind to what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus concludes in verse 45 saying, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But then immediately after the disciples' blindness, we have another blind man who's given vision. And we see this in uh, blind Bartimaeus, who says to Jesus, "Son of David, have mercy on me." And we read in verse 51, and Jesus said to him, "What do you want me to do for you?" And the blind man said to him, "Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. Do you see the connection with discipleship and following Jesus and seeing who he is? It's about faith. We have to see with the eyes of faith. It's the eyes of faith that help us to see who Jesus is. So we've seen twice now this disciples being spiritually blind and a physically blind man giving his sight being given sight and this escalates then in the second situation where faith is linked with seeing but then now a last example of this blind versus having vision comparison mark shows us at the end of the third major section which is the son of god's ministry in jerusalem which is that section four in the outline. We see the greatest display of irony in the Gospels when the council is mocking Jesus about being the Christ, the son of the blessed. We see them mocking Jesus. We see him delivered over to Pilate and being mocked as the king of the Jews. We see Jesus mocked in verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. And put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, with an inscription over his head that said, The King of the Jews. Mark records in verse 29 of chapter 15, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't even save himself. They were utterly blind to who Jesus was. They said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But what happens as Jesus dies a rebel's death? That centurion that we mentioned already stood facing him. And as Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. One pagan Roman centurion. Saw Jesus for who he truly was. So Mark emphasizes this theme of blindness and sight to see Jesus as the Son of God three times at the end of each major section of the Gospel. Finally, then we come to number six, Mark's abrupt end. One of the most puzzling things about the Gospel of Mark is how it ends. If you look at, uh, at, in your Bibles and you go to chapter 16, you will see a note after verse 8, at least in most, uh, most modern Bibles. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include sixteen nine to 20. It is, it is likely that somebody added to the gospel feeling that it was incomplete for some reason or another. But of all the ways that the Gospel of Mark could end, and I believe it ends in verse 8, it ends with fear. Jesus was not in the tomb, as still the hard hearted, blind disciples expected. Remember Mary Magdalene, as Mark records here, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I believe with the, the commentators who have noted this long before for me, that Mark ends on a note of discipleship. Basically, he has shown you that Jesus is the Son of God. In all these ways, through his exorcisms, through his healings, through nature, through the the ABA structure, that triangle structure of his gospel, through the blind vision comparisons, he has shown you that Jesus is the Son of God. But now the question remains open for you. It's an open-ended conclusion to the gospel. Who do you say that he is? Will you follow him? Will you see with the eyes of faith? Or will you go on being blind? Let me tell you as a disciple, if you see Jesus for who he is, it is both glorious and terrifying. Remember the heart of the gospel, and we read it for our confession of sin this morning from Mark's gospel. Maybe look at that with me in the the worship folder. The heart of discipleship is that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The disciples are terrified because they begin to see the implications of what it means to follow Jesus. It's to become the slave of all, it's to take up the sign of execution, meaning you've crucified your present life and now you're wholly, wholeheartedly following Jesus. So, Mark ends by effectively saying, I've shown you that Jesus is the son of God. Now are you going to follow him or are you going to run away? And for any of you particularly who have come to Jesus later in life, you know that's a terrifying prospect because it means leaving everything that you Mark has shown us that Jesus is the Son of God. Now he's asking you, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray.